Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have a special guest with us uh, outside of the Lutheran sphere, uh, but still within Christianity in general. We welcome to our program, Aaron Wren. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Aaron is a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, a co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer. He had a first and second career in management and technology consulting for major corporations, as well as he was a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute. Uh, Now he just is trying to help us all out, helping conservatives and the American church to rise to the challenge of finding success in our age, uh, combating the spirit of the age. So thanks for giving us your time today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I had read your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from the weekend edition back in September 29th, the title, What Jordan Peterson Can Teach Church Leaders. Uh, This is a hot topic. Uh, I don't know, as a pastor, if there's ever a week where I don't hear something to the effect of, pastor, why doesn't our church or why doesn't the church have somebody like Jordan Peterson uh, advocating for the men, not only in the church, but just in our communities? Where are those people? Why is it, does it, that, does it seem that the church is lacking this? Yes, this is really the question that caused me to shift to my third career. I was working at the Manhattan Institute doing urban policy, mostly focused on Rust Belt cities. I still do a little bit of that. I did a big research report this year on the future of Appalachia. But what I began to see about a decade ago is that men were turning to these online influencers for guidance the man of sphere or different things, whatever you would call it. And back then, uh, this was really before Jordan Peterson even got going. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't like people knew who any of these people were. A lot of them had thousands of uh, subscribers and, and followers on the internet, but they weren't household names. And yet I saw they were reaching young men. Young men were turning to them, but young men were by and large checked out of the traditional institutions of society. You know, the, the perennial question of why men don't go to church, why men don't want to, you know, aren't as into going to church as women are, uh, is kind of been out there for a very long time. Uh, so it's not a new question. Uh, but what I, uh, but what I saw was, you know, they're not turning to, you know, teachers, they're not turning to pastors, they're not turning to politicians, they're not turning to parents, they're not turning to traditional authority figures, but they're turning to these people online and what's going on there. And so I started paying attention to that, studying that, and it led to essentially the work that I do now, uh, which is still very heavily focused on gender issues related to men, uh, but also kind of expanded a little bit into the general future of the church uh, in America. 
And uh, so that was kind of that, that really was something there. And of course, over time, we saw this gigantic explosion of this men's influencer space. Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson became uh, the biggest by far, uh, you know, with millions of uh, uh, readers and subscribers and, and YouTube uh, followers, sold millions of copies of his book, 12 Rules for Life. But there's also people like Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, uh, David Portnoy, who's the uh, Barstool sports guy. And of right. course, most infamously today, Andrew Tate, uh, right. which uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about Andrew Tate because uh, this is, I think, really, it's Andrew Tate that has really um, shook people up in sort of mainstream society and said, what's going on that these young men are turning into people like that? And so that's the issue that I really decided to hone in on and focus on in my op-ed, which we can come to in a moment, was really focused on what are the things, some of the things that those online influencers are doing that the mainstream authorities are not. Yeah. So, I mean, all of these guys that you mentioned, uh, I probably came into reading some of these guys through Jocko Willink mostly. Uh, And then, you know, Jordan Peterson, uh, even Andrew Tate, there's some, you know, obviously there are a lot of things as a Christian uh, and a pastor I just like find abhorrent, but there are a lot of things that just resonate. Like he's just saying what is true in some of these cases. Um, Hmm. And uh, just in terms of so often, I don't know, I think particularly in the church, we speak about things as though we have no agency, uh, or we don't have agency in the places that we actually do, and then we assign agency in places that we don't have agency. And so what I find, uh, I guess, somewhat refreshing about all of these guys is they're saying, look, you have more agency than you think. And uh, over the things that you know you really need to have or consider to have agency for. So... Um, is that part of it that they that these men uh, are really calling other men to say, "Look, it might not be your fault, but you do have a responsibility here, and you actually have some agency to take care of business." Yes, there's uh, obviously a wide range of these influencers in terms of what they teach and what their style is, uh, but I do think that's one, especially when it comes to men. They um, they do sort of say, look, you have agency, you can improve yourself, you need to take responsibility for your own life. So in that regard, they are sort of aligned with some of the traditional kind of man up people in the church or whatever, who sort of uh, want to come after men and tell them, you know, you need to do better, you need to be a better dad. There's definitely an encouragement to that. I mean, Jocko is something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, who really kind of encourages men to get more serious and that, but they've got a kind of a, a different way of doing it that um, I think uh, really differentiates them from a lot of the other people. So, you know, yeah, I uh, agree. Yeah. I, I definitely don't get the sense from them that they're wagging their finger like a school marm. Um, it's really kind right. of like an encouragement, like, a, you know, the the way you think of um guys in the weight room encouraging each other to you know to push harder or to go faster that kind right. of thing uh not a 
well, you, you know, you can do better wagging your finger at me. Yes. I think they're, you know, what I say is they do a few things. When they tell you to get better, uh, and this is one of the things I put in my Wall Street Journal op-ed, is they sort of allow men to be important in their own right and treat mm. their sort of well-being, their hopes, dreams, and aspirations as important. They will start with the man himself and say, what you want out of life, your dreams matter, and I can show you how to get there. Whereas I think traditional authorities tend to view manhood almost exclusively in terms of sacrificing for others, typically your wife and children. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that is a part of it, that genuine manhood does involve serving others, does involve self-sacrifice, but it's not reducible to simply those things. And these guys treat men as ends, not means. Whereas I think the traditional authorities tend to treat men often implicitly as if they don't matter themselves, uh, but they're really just sort of an instrument to help other people. So yeah. uh, the example, I, I'll use a couple examples here. One is um, you'll often hear uh, people in the church talk about, they often reference a study from Switzerland back from the 90s in which basically if the mother becomes Christian, uh, really the the husband and children typically do not end up becoming Christian and going to church. Whereas if the father becomes a Christian, the, the, the mother and the children typically do start going to church, becoming Christian. And so they've got this, this sort of theory that if you want to reach, you know, the family reach men, that's almost a literal saying of some of these people. But if you listen closely to it, what it really is saying is we're interested in your family. We're not so much interested in you. You're just the instrument we're using to get the family. And most of the, ways people make the case about helping young men in society talks about how the struggles of young men affect other people. Well, there's a shortage of marriageable men, so women are struggling to get married today, so we have to do something about that. It's like, we don't actually care that the men are struggling. We only care about that in as much as it's causing problems for women who can't get married, and it's affecting them, or it's causing these other societal issues, radical politics, etc. And so, I think that... Um, these guys don't do that. These guys start with a man himself, this young guy, and say, hey, you're important. What you want out of life is important. Now, I think <clears throat> for some of them, they, uh, you know, I do something, you know, inappropriate. If what they want out of life is to have sex with lots of women, obviously I'd reject that as morally improper end right. of life. <laughs> and that's what a lot of them are. I mean, like pickup artists are, it's like a big community there, the Andrew Tates. A lot of right. what Andrew Tates says you should do in life is almost like a caricature of a rap video, you know, get the Bugattis and the private jets and the cigars and your harem of women and all this stuff. And those are not, those are not healthy ends. But in other cases, you know, I think with Jocko, with Jordan Peterson, they talk about why, um, why, you know, what you want is important out of life. You want to uh, get in better shape. You want to have a business. You know, you want to be able to, own a lot of land one day, some goal that you have in life, you and your hopes, dreams, and plans are important. And so that they start, they start with that, which is something that very few, I think, mainstream people do. And even when guys like Jordan Peterson talk about uh, men is important for other people, they often, you know, they, they often talk about it a different way. So I think his line from 12 Rules for Life is something to the effect of, 
you have some vital role to play in the unfolding of the universe. Therefore, it is very important that you take excellent care of yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the idea being, if, if you're not healthy, if you don't have anything, you can't give anything. Right. And so creating and producing super abundance so that you have something to give is important. And so even when they talk about, hey, you're important for other people, that means you have to be healthy. You have to have a job. You have to be taking care of business in order to be useful to anyone else. And so I think that's really one right there. This idea that um, you're important as a man, it does not come through in a lot of these other people, especially in, in the evangelical church. I don't know as, as much what Lutheran, um, what the Lutheran churches teach, but a lot of these evangelical churches, literally, they say men exist essentially exclusively to be servant leaders to cater to their wife and children. That's almost the explicit teaching of what they do. And in fact, I, I say it's such a bleak vision of what it means to be a man. No wonder people don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, um, what they mean yeah, by so servant so leaders think, is servile leaders. Servile leaders, exactly. That is, so, that is really bleak. <laughs> you know, one of the things that the online influencers do, that again, these church people don't and other people don't, the online influencers are very direct and upfront about what I call substantive gender complementarity, which is to say men and women are different in very important ways. So Mm -hmm. a guy like Jordan Peterson will say that on the big five personality trait of agreeableness, women are on average more agreeable than men. Mm -hmm. Men are less agreeable. And he would, uh, use that to say, well, one reason that women don't get as many raises is because they're not willing to go into the boss's office and be a jerk and demand more money, <laughs> right. which men are more likely to do. And he talks about things like that. Whereas I will say, uh, again, it, certainly more knowledgeable about the evangelical church, they do not really believe in substantive gender complementarity. They talk about how men and women are different in all these different ways, but they're remarkably unspecific. They almost never give some example of how men and women are different unless they will occasionally make some disparaging remark about men, such as saying men are more likely to string women along uh, in dating and not marry them. Or they might say something nice about women like, oh, well, there's this study that shows women make better orchestra conductors or something like that. But it's very, it's very weak. Yeah, it's very weak sauce. And that has a big implications because what it means is if there's no real difference between men and women, which they essentially don't believe there's much difference that they're willing to articulate, then the only way that our actual gender expresses itself in the world is through the way that we relate to other people, mm-hmm. uh, relate to the opposite sex. So the only kind of thing that, that is specifically, you know, you as a man is the way that you treat your wife or treat your kids. There, There's nothing beyond that because they don't talk about men and women as different. And I I think part of that is a result of the fact that um, they're very concerned about blowback uh, from women if they say something like, uh, so one of these online influencers is a guy named Jack Donovan, who is literally a Satanist priest. I call him a a pagan masculinist. He's definitely a neo-pagan. I think he today worships Thor or something like that. Uh, He wrote a book called The Way of Men. It's a very famous book. It sold a ton of copies. And he says that, um, you know, there's basically four tactical virtues that men have to 
embody strength, courage, mastery, and honor. Mm. Now, you go to a church person, you say, courage is an attribute of manhood. They would not be willing to say that because they would, they would immediately have to face the question of, are you saying women can't be courageous? And so I think they avoid making statements like that because uh, if they make a statement like that, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to get a lot of blowback. So many of the traditional male attributes, they will not affirm as male attributes because they're afraid of this. Now, Donovan, of course, he doesn't care what people think about what he says. <laughs> right. And he also, I think, I think also, you know, he, he's actually got an explanation that's a very good explanation, actually. She's like, she's like courage. He's like, look, uh, women can be courageous. I'm not saying women can't be courageous. What makes courage a masculine virtue is that men and not women are judged based on whether they are courageous. Right. So a man who it runs away or displays cowardice when he is expected to be courageous is judged wanting uh, by other men. He failed the test. He will suffer a price for that. A mm. woman who is courageous may be praised for her courage, but if she's not courageous, if she runs away, uh, you know, from a fight, nobody's going to think that she's deficient as a woman because she did mm -hmm. that. Whereas it's meant, so he's got like a little explanation, but these guys have no explanations. And so basically, well, you can't say strength is a male. Women can be strong. You know, women can be this. And that's just kind of my, it's a little bit of my hypothesis about why they won't, they won't list any actual male attributes. And as a result, you know, their, um, their whole definition of what it means to be a man is essentially how you relate to your wife. Um, the main um, book that defines the evangelical gender theology is a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The main writer there, John Piper, in the very first chapter, he defines manhood uh, as uh, the way that men, you know, provide for, love, serve. I don't know the exact one, the women in his life in different ways. Mm -hmm. He literally defines it in terms of how you relate to women. And it says, well, there's more to it than this, but this is the heart of it. But he never says what the more is. There's never any specifics. And so uh, they end up with this very impoverished idea of what it means to be a man. And that's why you end up with a sort of servility um, aspect to it, because, you, you know, you're only there. And again, it's it's complex. We could, we could, you know, unpack this stuff for a very long time. But the uh, again the the online guys I think are much more ready uh, willing to say men and women are just different um, and you know one of the ways that they'll say this is to frankly acknowledge that the uh, the characteristics that drive attraction are asymmetric so the things that men find attractive in a woman are not the same things that women find attractive in a man right so women uh, find men attractive who have power and status confidence and charisma, looks and style, and resources like money. Uh, whereas men uh, are overwhelmingly interested in looks and youth. <laughs> and that's sort of the end of the game. So like, so you always hear a lot of complaints that like, you know, from, you know, certain people that like, oh, you know, I, you know, you know, men don't, you know, they're intimidated by my accomplishments. They don't value my intelligence, my accomplishments. And the truth is they don't. <laughs> They're not necessarily intimidated by them, but men just don't find, whereas a man who's very successful in his career becomes rich, uh, et cetera, uh, you know, uh, often attracts a lot of women. A woman who 
becomes a very successful entrepreneur, et cetera, does not necessarily attract a lot of men on account of that because those things are not that. And there's great research on this. Like uh, they've done research about like how much, how much does your attractiveness get boosted by uh, an extra dollar of income? And it takes, you know, a hundred times more money to raise a woman's attractiveness than it does a, a man's attractiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, or something of that nature. So these guys start going into this stuff and start talking about the implications of these things. And that's just something that's not done um, by these sort of mainstream influencers or mainstream authorities, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's really fascinating how D- Donovan is able to separate these as supremely masculine virtues based on how they're evaluated men as deficiencies, you know, versus excesses. Um, uh, That is probably a really helpful cue uh, on moving forward, even for diagnosing female virtues. Uh, If, if we were to, to go down that road, what would we, what would we say, you know, this is specifically female uh, and, they re- they're shamed for having a deficiency in it. That was yeah, that's a good question. I don't I don't actually study that uh, yeah. <laughs> to be quite honest. No, I'm no, not no. super I, interested. That's what this yeah. is like. I am not all that interested in a lot of people. Um, uh, sort of uh, end up with these sort of anti-feminist um, motivations and what they do are things like that. I'm not actually interested in that at all. It it occurs to me that like my project really had nothing to do with essentially feminism. I'm mm-hmm. interested in talking about men uh, sort of as men. And, you know, I leave the women's stuff to women to talk about <laughs> yeah. uh, for the most part. Uh, well, again, some just... of the stuff around, yeah, some of the stuff around attraction, obviously you, you need to know those things. Yeah. Um, uh, but a lot, you know, the, the, the you know, I, I don't, I don't go around telling women what they should be or what they should do. No, I was thinking more from a theological perspective in terms yeah. of pastors diagnosing sin, um, thinking of it in terms of those deficiencies and what are primarily considered female virtues uh, w- would be a good way to, to, to begin speaking about, you know, uh, what are besetting sins of women versus what typically happens uh, just talking about the besetting sins of men. Right. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned in your article that th- these guys actually live this. Like they're they're not just standing in a pulpit, uh, and their lives are a mess and they're out of shape. Uh, I mean, the joke in the Missouri Synod is like you have to be a certain percentage above the norm uh, uh, above the normal BMI to be a pastor. Uh, yeah. So is there a sense in which that they actually live this out? They follow this and they want to be like that. Well, I can tell you that they certainly want to give off the impression that they are living by it. That's yeah. the thing about the online world. We really don't know what these people's lives are like. Everybody is putting forth an image. And of course, we hear a lot about that on Instagram with younger girls who see these people who are using filters and all this highly edited material mm-hmm. to create fake realities that then make people feel bad because they don't measure up to them. 
Now, obviously, mm-hmm. a guy like Andrew Tate is in great shape. Jocko Willett yeah. was a Navy SEAL. He is in great shape. Um, Joe Rogan is in great shape. Um, so, you know, you can't, some, to some extent, like somebody who's physically in great shape, you can see it. Uh, but these guys do like to um, sort of give off the opinion, sort of get off the impression that they are um, demonstrating the very virtues that they have. So a lot of the pickup artists uh, would videotape themselves going out in public and hitting on women. Now, many of those videos are fake. Um, A ton of them are fake. Uh, So, but they like to give you this idea, hey, watch, watch me go out and do this. What I, what I do find interesting, and this is one to watch for is um, many of these people actually uh, even manufacture opportunities to demonstrate courage in the public arena. So the thing that there were two things that really made Jordan Peterson famous. One was when he said, I will not follow this Canadian pronoun law. Mm-hmm. The second was when he went on this channel Four interview uh, in the UK where he faced a very hostile interviewer for about 30 minutes and stood his ground and going into those very hostile environments and kind of demonstrating that courage is something that people do because it shows, um, you know, it allows them to demonstrate that uh, to, to their followers. Ben Shapiro used to go speak on college campuses and there was a, there's a great video of Ben Shapiro uh, in, in like the lobby of this theater. And there's, there's all these like protesters around everywhere. And he's there and he's like, I'm going into the lion's den. I'm going to show you that I'm willing to go into this very hostile environment and stand firm. And so they do, I think, self-consciously um, promote a certain uh, way of uh, kind of demonstrating or trying to give off an image that they mm-hmm. live what they want. But again, I think a lot of it is actually fake. Um, I, I think Andrew Tate, for example, is clearly lying about how much money he has. And uh, apparently people have gone to where he lives in Romania and his house in Romania is like not a nice villa in the nice part of town. It's a nondescript box in a sort of industrial area mm-hmm. showing that, yeah, this guy is not living like someone with hundreds of millions of dollars. He probably doesn't own a private jet. He probably just arranged to get some pictures taken on a private jet. Probably didn't own a Bugatti. Again, maybe some of the stuff he did, but like, I think a lot of these people are um, faking it, to be quite honest. Not all of them. Jocko's not a fake, uh, but uh, you have to be careful. But they certainly do want to give off the impression that they are highly successful Um people who are living out what they do but we have to be careful when you look at what these people uh, look at what these people are doing because it may not be uh, may not be real is there a sense in which the church defines or has defined success differently than than these men are defining success and or these influencers are defining success and that's also part of the problem well, I, again, I know evangelical churches uh, the most, you know, from a standpoint of manhood, they tend to, you know, sort of look at a sort of, um, uh, you know, so it's almost using this example of, of Christ emptying himself of his glory and coming to earth as this carpenter and all of that, that there's a sort of completely inverted schema of what success looks like. Mm-hmm. Success sort of equates to loserdom 
And, you know, the truly successful man is the one who, you know, doesn't have all this stuff, but is the most sacrificial. And, there, and there's an element of that that's true, um, I think. Now, of course, the people who are saying this, as I say, they don't live what they, they actually preach. Most of these people are very ambitious. You know, they've got huge ministries and churches. They're enormously successful people uh, by conventional standards. And uh, so uh, I think that's kind of interesting. But, um, you know, certainly I would say the um, uh, the online influencers, uh, you know, have somewhat a conventional view of success around, you know, financial success, you know, success with women, uh, health and fitness, etc. But one of the things that I think that they also do uh, is really focus on autonomy uh, as a virtue. And this is one of the things, there's a great book by a anthropologist. He may have been from Yale or maybe it was just Yale University Press by David D. Gilmore called Manhood in the Making, where mm-hmm. he um, he uh, surveyed all these different cultures around the world from sort of primitive tribes to, you know, village, you know, places in Spain and then all of this to try to like find common themes of manhood. And one of the things that, you know, he came up with was this idea of freedom of action the the man the, you know, the, the true men have autonomy they can be self-directed they can take action independently in the arena without other people having to do it and so there's certainly a very right-wing inflected um political uh, vibe uh, on the online right you know, i think virtually all of these guys are mm. you know you would classify them as being on the right and they tend to have a very low view of our society um, that uh, they use a, v- a variety of negative terms to describe and creating autonomy from the system, being so that you're not under the thumb of the man, so that you're not allowing yourself to be sort of, uh, you know, under the thumb of all these people. And I think that's a big part of the appeal. You know, who doesn't want to tell their boss to take this job and shove it, you know, sometimes, you know. <laughs> now, this is what you could probably gather. This is sort of a Nietzschean vision. A little Mm -hmm. bit. And many of these guys are sort of explicitly Nietzschean in their view of of the world. Uh, And so I certainly, you know, would say in a, um, uh, uh, there's a sense in which that can be done in a negative way. But I think this idea of one of the virtues of success, to be successful, is to essentially be your own boss. To be someone who isn't hemmed in by society mm-hmm. in the world. And again, you have this autonomy, you have this freedom of action of movement. And that's why they're very focused on side hustles and entrepreneurship. A lot of them are about starting your own business because they're like, you need to control your own destiny in a sense. And I think that's very, mm-hmm. that's very appealing to young men. Yeah. Uh, uh, the church has something like this, you know, I mean, just in terms of, you know, post justification, post regeneration by the spirit the the putting to death or the killing of your sin um is is this something that has fallen by the wayside in that you've noticed just in the church in general uh of what people what sermons focus on or bible classes focus on do they do they focus uh on look you you do actually post regeneration have some agency to mortify your flesh, and you can do that. 
And actually, the Bible wants you to do that. <laughs> is, is this something that's lacking it, that these guys put forward and say, look, you can do this? And we just kind of say, look, you're always going to, you're always going to fail. We're kind of living always in Romans 7. Yeah, I, that's a good question. And not one that I've studied in depth. My impression is that, again, in the evangelical world, uh, they are very uh, hesitant to talk too much about the quest for uh, uh, obeying God's laws, uh, sanctification in that sense, out of a fear of appearing legalistic or having sort of a works righteousness-based system. You know, really under the influence of, you know, guys like Tim Keller, there's this, you know, huge, what they call gospel-centered movement. And so it, it, a lot of it is, in, in kind of in my view, it's all indicative, no imperative, um, mm-hmm. in the sense that there is a lot about, you know, what Christ has done for us. You know, it's like the first three chapters of Ephesians, <laughs> but well, the second three chapters of Ephesians are not stressed as much. Like, here's how you ought to be living in response, it's less emphasized. I won't say it's completely de-emphasized, right. but it's less emphasized. You know, I do also think of, of a guy like Paul, for example, it, it, um, you know, beyond kind of just sanctification, I mean, his idea, his ambitions, he's like, my ambition is basically to, to preach Christ where he's never been proclaimed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the places that have already been evangelized. I want to go to the places where there haven't been, you know, Christ has not been preached. Yeah. And his... His going in to these extremely hostile environments, and I mean, getting beaten, getting stoned, getting shipwrecked, uh, all these things that he did, like, Paul was one tough dude, physically, (laughs) mentally, and emotionally. I mean, if you look at just the physical abuse he took, how many people could survive being stoned? I mean, that guy was tough. He was tough physically. And then he talks it's uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians about his, and talk about the daily concern he has for all the churches and the weight of all the responsibility that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can read a book like Second uh, uh, Timothy. Paul's in jail. All of his friends are have abandoned him, basically. He's about to be executed. And he's still saying, I got to get out to Timothy. I got to send him this kind of like last advice. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to preach the gospel. When you look at like his ability to bear up in these incredible circumstances, like it's like pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, we don't say we should be like that. Right. Uh, you know, or, you know, you could think of like a lot of times, you know, what Jesus did, like engaging with these Pharisees and just making them look like fools over and over and over again. <laughs> he's really, he's, he's in the arena, like competing with the top people you know, in, in terms of his teaching. And so I think there are a lot of things, you know, in the Bible that um, you can think, of course, the Old Testament, David is a warrior. Um, of course, you know, the Bible also says the, you know, God is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior mm-hmm. from Exodus. And there are a lot of these things that I think we don't, we don't typically draw on uh, in, in terms of that. Um, no, I th- you, you make a good I think point there, I think about Paul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've always struck, I mean, you you line up 2 Corinthians 11 with Acts, and there's more in 2 Corinthians 11 than is revealed in Acts. And so it's like you're reading through Acts, the second half of Acts, and you're like, wow, he, he gets up and goes to the next place and goes through the same thing. And then there's more 
Um, and at the right. end, you know, he's like, well, I delight in these things. You know, I'm content with that. Uh, it, it's really, really a remarkable, a remarkable thing to, to think about. Yeah. He, I mean, he was like an, uh, there aren't very many people like Ball <laughs> in terms of like, you know, I mean, how many people combine his obviously formidable intellect with, you know, that level of physical toughness? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's really got the whole shebang, you know, spiritually, intellectually, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. He, he was the whole package on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, so there's like a lot of things like that, but this idea that you might his ambition, which again it was a mission, missional ambition. I think that's a lot of it's kind of, of missing uh, from the way they talk to men is this concept of mission. I think it's very important. Yeah, you know, he had a mission, and his mission was for the church. And he's like, I want to, I have an ambition, and my ambition is to do this, and that is like something I think is not really you're not really allowed to say, <laughs> right? As a Christian man in America, here's my ambition. Well, you shouldn't right. have that. You know, you need to be sacrificing your ambitions. You need to give up your ambition. That's basically all they would say. And many of your ambitions could be very good. Paul's ambitions were to preach the gospel. It had not been preached. And I think there are so many ambitions we can have that are actually good ambitions, not just for ourselves, but for other people and for society. Um, you know, one of my, my ambition is to help conservative American Christians successfully adapt to the 21st century. That's what yeah. I want to do. And obviously, I want to have success doing that, but the mission is also for the sake of other people. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there is there is a sense in which ambition is on the wane, kind of all around. And in the church, it is, as you said, looked down upon. Um, and and maybe that's what we need. Like, we need people to, to reclaim what godly ambition is. Um, and and not to be ashamed of ambitions and to state them out right and if they need to be corrected or channeled into a different place because they're ungodly then that's one thing but it seems like we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in terms of we want to get rid of bad ambitions so we're just going to get rid of ambition altogether right yeah i think there's 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 something to ambition is treated uh, ambivalently at best, but often mm. suspect. Yeah, you know another thing that these guys do uh, is uh, the online influencers is they are immensely practical yeah. in the advice that they give. They actually give you news you can use. Uh, they'll give you you know exercise tips. They'll give you diet tips. They'll give you business tips. They'll give you you know dating tips. They'll tell you, like, here's how you do these certain things. Um, Jocko Willink right now is doing a series uh, on on his podcast where he's putting up these, like, short two- to four-minute videos with, like, some principle of what you can do. Uh, you know, one of them, for example, was forget all about that stuff. And he talks about, hey, you can, you can basically suffer from paralysis by analysis where you start overanalyzing all the ways things could go wrong such that you never go execute on the mission. Mm-hmm. He's like, yes, you need to be thinking about what can go wrong. You need to be planning. You need to do contingency planning. You need to do all that stuff. But at some point you actually have to go execute the mission. And he talks, of course he talks a lot about it in terms of, of seals and what, how they operate. And so he's just going around and giving these things and they're not even, you know, they're not like 
I would call a lot of them super insightful in that sense. They're sort yeah. of the basics. But I mean, it, a lot of it is, I think a lot of what he's, you know, he would even say, I'm not an expert on Jocko. When I look at him, he's like a basketball coach. You know, one of that I had have growing up where it's like, you need to just relentlessly drill the fundamentals. You you just got to get better and better at doing it. You need to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go work out every single day. You need to have that discipline. Mm-hmm. You need to have that ownership. It's not about the most fancy tactics and all that. A lot of it is about just doing these basic things and taking this stuff. And and what I love about Jordan Peterson's, some of his stuff from his, his, his work, is how it works metaphorically, but also literally. So when he says, clean your room, bucko, or he says, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Yeah. If you're a completely screwed up young guy who doesn't know where to start in life, you could literally start by just physically cleaning your room up. Mm-hmm. Say, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go make my bed, as uh, uh, Admiral William McRaven said in his book and viral commencement speech, make your bed. He was a Navy SEAL. Like, make your bed. Start by making your bed in the morning. Start by doing this stuff. And of course, it's a metaphor. But also, if you don't know what to do, it works literally. You just do it. I am going to stand up straight with my shoulders back. And so that that gives people an on-ramp to these things. And there's a lot of very, very practical stuff. You know, I recently read Senator Josh Hawley's new book on manhood. I think it's actually called Manhood. I don't think there's a single piece of practical advice in the book. Not one thing that he, you know, he you could take away from that and say, here's how I'm actually going to improve as a man. There's very, very little uh, practical stuff in it. Uh, it's all about, you know, this, you know, vision of manhood and, uh, and all of that. But like when it comes down to, okay, now what do I do? Not much of that in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, these guys, of course, um, you know, and that's why I feel like a lot of times in the church, it's like the issue has been that the pastors are supposed to tell us everything. Everybody expects the pastor to be the all-purpose expert on every subject. The truth is, pastors are supposed to preach the Bible, right? They're supposed right. To, to to do these things. They're not supposed to be the expert on starting businesses or all sorts of life coaching things, as I call them. And in fact, I think the life coaching becomes dangerous because even the best advice can go horribly wrong in certain circumstances. And, yeah. you know, when you start talking about as a pastor— uh, kiss dating goodbye or whatever is, is that uh, Joshua Harris did and get into the purity culture and all this stuff and it turns into a disaster and it sort of discredits what you're doing. I think that there need to be many more lay leaders. And I do think, I don't think we need a Christian Jordan Peterson, but I do think we could ask why are is there not a Christian psychologist who can articulate the psychology literature on gender as confidently and as expertly as Jordan Peterson did? does when he shows up on TV in these hostile interviews. We don't have those experts. And so um, that's where I feel like, you know, we need, you know, we need people who uh, can share their expertise, you know, from, from an implicitly Christian perspective, not necessarily Christianizing it. It's like, Oh, here's your Christian business guide. But like, I'm a Christian and here in my values inform how I do business, but here's just good business advice within that. Mm -hmm. And that's when, and it's, it's probably a lay leader doing that. Someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, we need people who actually know what they're talking about. And um, so I, when I think that that sort of practicality that they have um, in terms of like giving you news you can use, as I call it, practical advice, uh, really distinguishes what they do. 
That's a really good point. I had read a book by Matthew Crawford a number of years ago now called Shop Classes Soulcraft. And he talks about pretty much the same thing that most kind of experts and fields uh, today kind of just live in their heads and they don't have the sol- the problem solving skills to diagnose a problem and then find it and fix it in like real world settings. It's all kind of abstract thinking. Um, and, uh, and until we're, and his thing was until you're working with your hands again, uh, in the shop class and actually diagnosing problems right in front of you, uh, you're going to lose that ability. You're just always going to be theoretical and not in the physical, physical world. No, I agree. And, uh, myself, like a lot of, uh, people, my generation, uh, didn't learn how to do a whole lot of things. Right. You know, my dad is baby boomer. You can complain about baby boomers, which a lot of people do, but my dad could build an entire house himself. He literally knows how to do every single thing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to work on cars all the time. Of course, he doesn't do that today because you really can't do it today because of the computers and all that, but extremely competent person in doing all kinds of things. I'm like, I, I have trouble changing a light bulb. And so, uh, you know, I, I really started, um, you know, trying to get, get better and gain skills. That's one of the things these guys will tell you. It's one of the things I tell you is constantly be gaining new skills mm-hmm. and just taking a little projects as a way to gain mastery over certain, um, certain things. And, you know, like now, if you want to do something around your house, like a little home project, everything's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we bought this house, uh, moved in earlier this year and the, uh, the dishwasher detergent dispenser door was broken. It wouldn't stay shut. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, how do I, I'm going to go buy a new part. And I look online and there's a video on how to replace it. So I was able to replace that thing myself. Very small appliance repair that I never would have done. And mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this because it, people are now inclined to look online for guidance. When you want to know how to do something, you go to YouTube and you search for it. Yeah. And, so the online influencers are operating in that environment where now you don't, when you want to understand something, you don't, you don't ask your dad, you don't ask your neighbor, you ask YouTube, you know? And, um, so that's what I would say. Um, I think that, uh, that, that, that sort of thing has really changed the mentality of people that now the online is where you go to get practical information. Yeah. So, uh- along like one of your last points in your article was that, you know, they create a community. Um, and so many of the communities, like I live in a small town in central Illinois. Um, and you know, there's still communities around the football team and things like that. Uh, but you don't have, you know, the men's clubs that you used to have, you still have rotary and Kiwanis and things, uh, things like that, but they're not the men's they're clubs. They're not men's clubs anymore. They're not right. men's clubs anymore. They all admit women. Yeah. And uh, and you don't necessarily have the community to just say, hey, uh, you know, call up, you know, some friend. I, I'm trying to do this. How do I do it? You just look up on YouTube. Um, is this something the church has to engage in then, that, that we have to start trying to engage that online community? Or, uh, I mean, I don't want to ask how do you reverse it, but like, what's the way forward? Well, I don't, um, you know, I don't think we're going to replace the YouTube as the 
uh, way to find practical stuff like that. Right. I do think men are hungry for community uh, with other men, and there aren't a lot of places to get it today. Uh, in part, it's because all of the old male spaces have now essentially been forcibly integrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go back to, say, 1950s, I mean, a lot of you know men in a lot of ways sort of operated in a sex-segregated world. I mean, the work world was predominantly men. If you worked in an office or a factory, it was a male environment. You're a member of male clubs. Your military mm-hmm. unit was all male, uh, you know, on down the line. And that's not to say you were never around women. You were, obviously. But there were just a ton of single-sex spaces. Well, those have all essentially been targeted for elimination. I mean, mm-hmm. any sort of all-male organization is going to be attacked. Of course, female-only spaces are still permitted, and so there's that. But um, and and so I feel like people are looking for it. And I think the church is a place where that sort of real community could be built because churches are one of the few institutions left where it's essentially still socially ex- permitted to have like an all men's group. You could have a men's mm-hmm. Bible study, uh, for example. Now, I again. I, I just wrote about this. You know, a lot of people get a lot out of those. There are a lot of people who love their men's groups at church. There are a lot of people who don't. You know, I'm one right. of the ones who basically doesn't necessarily get a lot out of it. Um, and, you know, I think kind of like, yeah, I use the example in my article. Uh, my article, it's like, you know, holding each other accountable for watching porn kind of thing. That's what we kind of do. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with accountability groups per se, but... It, it's not, you know, men want to be, you know, it's not like a Marine platoon where you're, you know, with another, you're with a group of men engaged on mission and life together. You're doing something. And so um, I think it's not, I think men's groups in church are not very effective, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, but they're certainly, you know, maybe better than uh, secular society. And I think there's huge opportunities there to create community of men. Yeah. Um, so last question, just to kind of wrap up, um, you know, you've written elsewhere about, you know, the change of kind of Christianity status in the world altogether. What effect, I mean, if any, has the church's treatment of men or masculinity, strength, victory, these kinds of things, how has that contributed, if at all, to the status of Christianity in the world today? Uh, I don't know that it has any connection, actually. Okay. I, I hadn't thought about it. It's an interesting one to think about. I don't think it's the cause of the decline of Christianity. Look at it that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, Aaron, thank you for your time. Um, you can read more from Aaron at his uh, Substack website, AaronRen.com. Please subscribe. Um, you can uh, receive his updates right into your email. Uh, which I do, and I suggest all you guys do that as well. So, Aaron, thank you so much for your generosity uh, of giving your time to us today. Thank you for having me. 